You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Welcome to the second part of our podcast series on the war in Ukraine. My name is Bogdan Litvinenko, and I'm a graduating journalism student at Concordia University, reporting on original war stories. In this episode, we introduce you to Alexandra Postoeva, a journalism student who narrowly escaped from the city of Mariupol at the peak of Russian bombardments. We will also explore the information war and tactics used by the Kremlin with disinformation expert Craig Silverman. Just over a year ago, Alexandra Postoeva was following her passion, studying journalism at Mariupol State University. She covered cultural festivals, youth events, and even interviewed local celebrities for a Ukrainian magazine called Pro Mariupol. She was enjoying life as a 20-year-old university student and had no idea that her peaceful city of almost half a million people was about to be bombed to ruins. I remember when I got up on the 24th of February from the loud sounds of explosions outside and I felt maybe fear and sense of hopelessness. I hear all these news, I saw them, but I didn't believe them because I I thought how it can happen in 21st century. People started to stockpile in panic. And within 48 hours, the heating was shut off in buildings across the city due to Russian shelling in the outskirts. I had to sleep in a hat, boots, in my coat uh, because of savage cold. And I have never cried so much in my life as lying under three blankets. And the worst was still to come. In early March, Deputy Mayor Serhii Orlov described a terrible episode where Russian troops surrounded the city and dropped bombs for 15 hours straight. Then the hell began because the electricity, water, gas were cut off, shops were already closed and people were risking to be left under the ruins. My city uh, was so beautiful and gave me joy every day, but now I saw from my window the artillery that exploded in the yard and our flat was maybe 500 meters from the drama theater. The world watched in shock and horror as Russian bombs rained down on the Mariupol theater on March 16, 2022. 600 civilians were killed that day in an act Amnesty International condemned as a war crime. Ukrainians had even painted the word children in Russian directly in front of the theater to try to protect the people who were inside. It was no use. By that point, Postoeva says, Mariupol already resembled a post-apocalyptic city. Dead bodies were piling up on the sidewalks, and people were cooking meals on campfires outside. The city had lost all signs of modern civilization. It was dangerous to stay in Mariupol. We were running at our supplies. We haven't enough food to survive here. We haven't enough water and we can die every moment, every minute. My mother's uh, grandmother's apartment were burned and completely destroyed. We left a lot of our photographies, personal things here. As apartment buildings came down one after another, Postoeva says her family decided to leave while they still could. 
people were talking about getting out through a so-called green corridor, a demilitarized zone where humanitarian aid is allowed in and civilians are allowed out. Several attempts to open such a corridor had already failed, but staying was out of the question. So on March 19th, Postoeva and her family began the riskiest journey of their lives. Even father's car was shot through, but fortunately dad was able to drive it. Occupants check our passports, our things. They, um, they check all men. They said to men to dress out. And uh, they were searching for some tattoos, maybe what is connected with army, Ukrainian army. I remember for about 20 checkpoints of occupants uh, on our road to Berdyansk. It's a small town uh, in Zaporizhia region. They had managed to escape from their besieged hometown, but they remained in an occupied area of Ukraine. It was only after another stressful week on the road that Postoeva could breathe a sigh of relief. And the first thing that I see, it was uh, our flag and... Uh, uh, our speech or Ukrainian speech from our soldiers like let's go and I uh, felt happy that I'm in Ukrainian controlled territory and I will be safe now. Postoeva settled in the southern city of Odessa, a place that is relatively safe compared to the eastern part of Ukraine. Meanwhile, her university moved to the capital and switched to online education since schools are often the target of Russian shelling. Ukraine's Ministry of Education and Science estimates that more than 2,800 educational institutions have been damaged since the war began. At least 330 are now completely destroyed. All this has not stopped Postoeva from pursuing her passion. She continues to study remotely and says her journalism program is teaching her a very valuable lesson. How to spot disinformation related to the war in Ukraine. And there's a lot of it. The Kremlin spends over 1.5 billion US dollars a day on creating propaganda that's constantly streamed on state TV and social media, according to debunk.org, an independent think tank focused on disinformation in the Baltics, North Macedonia, and the US. Now, based on a report published in the Moscow Times last April, debunk.org also revealed that Russia tripled its spending on mass media in the first quarter of 2022, compared to the same period the year before. And it seems these efforts have achieved the desired effects. 75% of Russians support the war, according to the Levada Center, a non-governmental polling organization based in Moscow. Postoeva says it feels infuriating that even after everything that happened in Mariupol, millions of Russians still seem convinced that the city was liberated from Ukraine's so-called Nazi regime. This despite clear documentation that at least 21,000 civilians were killed in Mariupol and 90% of the city has been destroyed, let alone the horrors that have happened in other cities across the country. Now, our second guest is disinformation expert and ProPublica reporter Craig Silverman. He's been trying to understand how and why the Russian media has been so successful at brainwashing its population. They had laid the groundwork for a very long time. They didn't just sort of have to fire up the engines in 2014 or fire up the engines months ago, whether it was its TV networks with RT, um, online with Sputnik, 
And then also sort of the 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 whole networks um, and world of kind of proxy uh, websites and social media influencers who have all um, either wittingly or unwittingly been pushing kind of, you know, the Russian government's line. Most of us might think of disinformation as fabricated content or deep fake videos. But Silverman says the Russians started getting really creative at the start of the war and took things to a whole new level with fake fact checking. It was interesting for us to see this, uh, these videos starting to circulate on pro-Russian telegram channels where they were, you know, taking videos that were in some cases, you know, years old or videos that, you know, might have been more recent and using them to sort of claim to be debunking Ukrainian false information. Uh, and so it was an interesting and in some ways sort of clever and devious tactic because people do want to go to sources that are fact-checking and debunking information and sort of check what they've seen. And in this case, they were basically weaponizing the widespread practice of fact-checking um, in order to try and create the impression that Ukraine itself was falsifying its success in the war. Another example of fake fact-checking spotted by Silverman last March was a tweet by a pro-Russian official, Daniil Besonov, that seemed to debunk Ukrainian disinformation. He reposted a video of a massive explosion with the caption claiming it was shared by Ukrainian propagandists who said it was a Russian missile strike in Kharkiv, Ukraine's second largest city. So then he fake fact checks the video and adds his own caption, which was true, saying that the incident was a fire at an ammunition depot in the neighboring town of Balaklia in 2017. Silverman says the fake fact check spread like rapid fire resulting in Russian-speaking viewers assuming that pro-Russian channels are more credible and that Ukrainian ones are peddlers of propaganda. He believes the aim of all these fake fact-checks was to create confusion. In a lot of cases, the point of disinformation, if, if, if you're being realistic about it, is not necessarily to kind of change someone's mind or convince them of something. If, if at the very least you can see doubt, or if at the very least you can get them to start to question you know, what is real and not necessarily know where to apply their trust. And perhaps to to cause some people to sort of pull back and say, I just don't know what to believe and I don't really want to get engaged in this. Or, or maybe Russia's right or Ukraine's right. If you're Russia, that's a victory. It seems there is no end in sight for Russian news propaganda. There are always classic arguments in favor of denazification and demilitarization of the country. The dire need to liberate Ukraine's Russian speakers from Zelensky's neo-Nazi regime. And of course, the urgency of stopping NATO's expansion in the East. And disinformation is spreading about Postoeva's hometown as well. Mariupol is still in ruins and under occupation. But according to recent reports on Russian state television, it is a thriving city with many brand new modern buildings being built as we speak. The truth is that over the past year, Russia has built 22 residential buildings in Mariupol. As Evgeny Solnsev, the prime minister of the so-called Donetsk People's Republic, confirmed himself. But they've also bombed over 600 apartment blocks beyond repair since the start of the war. Now have a look at Russian Telegram and TikTok accounts and you'll see countless posts showing one or two modern looking complexes over and over again, suggesting that life is back to normal 
and even better than it ever was. Mariupol, 7 March. And a day after Vladimir Putin was accused of war crimes by the International Criminal Court, he made a surprise visit to the occupied city and was filmed at the same spot, the brand new residential district called Nevsky, as the BBC reported in March. But even then, it is impossible to hide the city's reality and its recent past, since you can still see the ruins and devastation and propaganda videos shot out of the windows of Nevsky. As AP reports, the city lost half of its entire population in less than a year. It is still not livable by modern standards. And people like Postoeva are not ready to go back while Mariupol stays under Russian control. But what she is ready to do is revive her home community that's scattered all over Ukraine and beyond its borders. Postoeva recently joined a project called I Am Mariupol. It is a network of support centers across Ukraine created specifically for the former residents of Mariupol who were displaced and lost their homes or lost their loved ones. And Postoeva says she's proud to apply her journalism and communication skills to help her home community while working remotely from Odessa. Now I work as an informational and humanitarian headquarters in the city of Vinnytsia. They provide humanitarian assistance, medical, legal and psychological assistance. As a public relations specialist, I am engaged in social networking, communicating with local media and specialists of the center. I also interview my fellow Mariupol residents. Sometimes it is morally difficult to communicate because people start crying, remembering the horror they went through in the city. For me, these memories are also painful, because I also experienced all the nightmares that Russians brought to us. Many resettlers call the center an island of home, because Mariupol residents walk there for Mariupol people, and we can understand each other as nobody can. So the soul of Mariupol lives on, and those who survived the tragedy continue building their lives. And so does Postoeva, as she tries to piece together the life she had before the bombs started falling. She even got married in the middle of the war after leaving Mariupol and now has greater aspirations for her professional future as a journalist. I want to write texts in a fashion magazine. It will be great because I want to write what is interesting for me. It's like fashion or travel. To have my own fashion magazine is like a dream. And an even bigger dream for Postoeva is to return home to the Ukrainian port city where she was born and raised. I want to see on my own eyes what is happening to my uh, lovely city. And I wanted to get my things to me, my maybe childhood toys. It's like a memory, my photos of photos of my grandmother because I haven't them in my phone. My phone is the only one thing that uh, comparing with memories in Mariupol. I see some news from Ukraine that some villages and small towns are now under the Ukrainian state and I hope it will happen to Mariupol soon. In the final episode of this series, we will hear from Dmitry Cherkasky. He is a Russian Montrealer who actively supports Ukrainian refugees and sends aid to the front lines. But his work is tearing his family apart. Those back in Russia believe he has been brainwashed and is a victim of disinformation and Western propaganda. 
Thank you for joining us today. I'm Bogdan Litvinenko for MIGS.